Okay. Risk is the show that's hosted by Kevin Ellis and the pervert. The stories are true and sometimes help you. It's Risk the Podcast. Stories of things going horribly wrong. Stories meant for grown-ups. I'm too young to hear the show. Risk the Podcast. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was a future fan of the show up top, and this is Trombone Shorty behind me now. It's been a while since we've had a a regular episode of Risk. We've had so many goddamn special episodes because of all the anniversary and the Indiegogo. Good lord. But we've got a a slew of amazing people telling stories today. Five very distinct voices. I love it. We're calling this episode New at This. Stories where people found themselves saying, upon which path have I ended up? Wherewithal. <laughs> All right. I'm a little stoned. The, the, the opening announcement was so intense, I had to chill out a little bit. But don't worry. I wrote the table of contents out beforehand. <laughs> might recall how a couple weeks back I said uh, that we heard that there's a lot of great storytelling happening in Chicago. And we'd be happy to feature Chicago storytellers on the show. A wonderful man by the name of Luis Antonio Perez. He works in radio there. And he wrote to me immediately and said, Hey, Kevin, I will record storytellers in Chicago. I said, great. Then a couple days later, he sends this amazing story. You're about to hear by Brian Babylon. Brian is the host of Morning Amp on Vocalo Radio in Chicago. The story was recorded at Kara Brigandy's show, Grown Folk Stories, at the Silver Room. So, this is Brian Babylon. The story he calls, Death Juice on the Rocks. It's like a January day, like uh, in Chicago. It's probably like 1998, and uh, I, w- I had a real live job at uh, what I was t- a real live job where I had to like dress nice. So I had got a whole bunch of Banana Republic clothes and uh, fitted shirts and a belt and some shoes that match, you know, like grown folk clothes. And I had it all laid out, and I had like a meet, a big meet, and I worked at a BT in the sales office in Prudential Building, so I was like doing real grown folk things. I got some new glasses. I was nice. So, get a phone call from my father. He's like, hey, meet me over on Seal's house. And in my spidey senses, I was thinking like, oh shit, it ain't Thanksgiving or Christmas. Why the fuck we going over Aunt Seal's house? So like, alright, so clearly in my back of the mind, I'm like, ah, uh, I think she's dead. But whatever. <laughs> Whatever. So I'm driving. I get there. And it's, it's on the west side in Auburn-Gresham uh, area. And it's freezing, freezing. It's like, you know how those, like, bone-chilling, like, you know, you got to do, like, plies to get your balls unfroze from your thighs, you know. It's that cold. So I go inside the house. And, like, I go. She has one of those, like, two-story buildings. I go inside there. And, like, the doors open. And I walk in, and everything's the same. The front room is, like, plasticed it all up. You know, one of them old-school plastic cribs with, the like, TV that weighed two tons. You know, everything how it's been since the 70s. So I walk in, and it's freezing inside. 
And I see Ancel sitting in her chair, her phone chair. You know how old people back in the day had their phone chair. You know, the chair, the chair that they made the phone calls in, you know, and she had one of those, one of those phones that will like, uh, will kill you if, you know, it will be a murder weapon, you know, like it weighed as heavy as fuck. It had, and it had her phone number from like the fifties, which was like KL, like letters. It was like KL five, seven, you know, it was like. So it had that on there. So she's is she's sitting in that chair and she's like in a in a nightgown and she dead as hell. She dead. But it's cool. She's like ninety she was like no, she was like eighty two. I mean, come on, she's been kicking it. She good. You know what I'm saying? She she did her thing. So I walk in, I walk in and I'm like I'm like, uh you know, and you get that sort of like reverent, you know, immediate reverence, like you know, like you know, like dang. Okay. You know what I know to do and shit. So my father's like, he's like usually a cool guy, but I see he's kind of off a little bit. And this is when you not kind of need your daddy to be your daddy. Like, come on, man. Let's, what are we going to do? So he's walking around. He's like, okay, man, um, help me get her up. So instantly I'm like, what the fuck? In my mind, I'm like, what you mean get her up? And this is like in the back, back in my mind. Like, you know, I didn't say like, like, what you mean get her up? So we, we actually got a building in Bronzeville that we've been doing a lot of rehab in at the time. So we had been doing these father-son drywall lifting uh, uh, duties together. So he got in, like, handyman mode. He's like, okay, you get that in, and I'm going to get this in. And then we're talking about a rigor mortis body at this point. You know what I'm saying? Not a slab of drywall. So I'm like, shit, okay. And the back of my mind, I was like, why are we doing this? I mean, like, ain't we supposed to make a phone call first before you... This could be a murder. Why we, you know, we don't, we don't know. So, so whatever. So he, we kind of get like a shoulder blade and like, he's not really thinking through how to get this body up. So I'm like, I'm like, all right, man, I get this, you know, and I'm not really holding shit. So he's like lifting his end strong. I'm like, well, hold on. I ain't got mines yet. So I get my end and this is what another spotty sense. I start hearing like, I'm going to tell you, it sounds just like, if you have a vase a ro- of roses and then the water that you have in a rose vase or whatever, I heard that like somebody was swishing it around. I'm like, what the fuck is that? So I, we lift the body up and he's lifting all strong and straight out of her, this area shot like all the innards. I guess it was all on my new Banana Republic clothes in my shoes. It was freezing. It was freezing. So instantly, I, I like, like, man, fuck this, daddy. What the fuck is going on, man? Straight up. Straight up, daddy. What the fuck, man? We supposed to call somebody. So I, I didn't mean to, you know, I didn't mean to curse at my dad like that, but I snapped. I snapped. Like, what the fuck, man? So, that was horrible. So, so I think he came too. I like. Are we supposed to make a phone call? I mean, I think we're supposed to call somebody first. He's like, okay, okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. So we called the, I guess the the city people, you know, and they came. So I had to go home and change into a new outfit. I was still looking cute, but I couldn't shower off. That I felt like that shit was on my leg for like two weeks. My leg had never been the same for, like, years after that. So that's the story of the uh, Death Juice on the Rocks, man. Thank you very much. Good night. I'm going down, down, baby. Oh, speaking of rain. Come on. 
it's become legend in my family now, but thanks to my mom, I have been able to figure out that it is, in fact, my earliest memory. I grew up in Kentucky. My dad is a, a Kentuckian. I tell people he's like the love child of Yosemite Sam and the Tasmanian Devil. He's not a tall man, but he's got a lot of bark. I don't think he actually really has a bite, but his bark is so terrifying, nobody tests it. Road rage is the canvas on which he paints. An impression of my father behind the wheel of the car is like, You pissant, cocksucking motherfucker, goddamn whistle-dick son of a bitch! I often had the image of him as a grizzly bear who would go into a rage, especially if his cubs were threatened. I am the third of four children. There's my older brother, Matt, my sister, Barbie, me, my younger brother, Phil, and we're all about 18 months apart. So the story takes place when I was two, my younger brother was six months old. And my little brother, Phil, especially as an infant, was the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. He was blonde, he's blue-eyed, the rest of us are dark-haired, dark-eyed. He was just this boneless, beautiful-smelling blob of pink, adorable flesh with whipped golden hair and, and a smile. Um, he really was a dessert in human form. So he was not just an infant, but an especially beautiful one. And so what happened on this day was that for some reason my father was taking me and the baby somewhere, which was very unusual. It often might have happened that my older brother and sister might go somewhere because they were older, they were, you know, had more activities being a couple of years ahead of us. And uh, so sometimes dad would take them somewhere and we would be at home with mom, but it never happened that the younger two were taken somewhere. But on this particular day, my dad put me and the baby in a car and he drove us somewhere. What I remembered was going down several steps into a basement office. I remember him ringing the bell and the door opening, and it was very dark inside, and a very skinny, very old man with very big, thick glasses, like plastic, thick, dark frames, thick lenses as well, so they sort of distorted his eyes, and this wild Albert Einstein-looking hair. Um, almost like white cotton candy coming out of this head. And just a little bit of light was coming through the slats of the Venetian blinds. And I remember seeing, staring at the dust floating through the slats in the, the light. And so we're in this dark place. It smells of disinfectant, but also of old. It smelled like old man smell. It was a place of decay. I had been taught how to take care of the baby and how to treat the baby and that it was a very fragile, precious thing and especially, you know, the fontanelle on top of his head and how to hold his neck and, you know, support his neck because babies' heads and necks are very fragile and, I mean, I certainly didn't ever carry him but I knew the drill with babies. We're in this strange place and my father hands the baby to this old man who lays the baby down on this table and snapped his neck. It was so shocking. There was baby Phil, this tremendously beautiful and fragile thing, and this old man just snapped him, just broke the baby. And I, my memory of it is that I just froze staring at it for a moment and then was completely ready for the grizzly bear to tear this thing apart, right? To just crush the... Because he could easily have crushed this old man. He was very frail looking. Um, the force of the neck snap was completely unexpected. But I was like... Uh, and I turned from this sight up to my father, who, you know, was very large to me then, expecting to see the rage, expecting Yosemite Sam, Tasmanian Devil, Grizzly Bear, calm as could be, looks right down to me, points at me and says, your turn. I could not make any sense of this. And dad picks me up and he's handing me to this guy. And this is the part nobody wants to believe because they think I'm, I'm rewriting it because a, I, they, I couldn't remember it or that these thoughts are too sophisticated for a two-year-old to have. But I swear to you, I remember a massive, very rapid series of thoughts in my head. And the first was, why is he having us killed? Why is he doing this? Why... 
does he hate us? Did we do something wrong? Like, I'm trying to think what the baby could possibly have done wrong, what I could have done wrong, and I'm running through everything. And um, then I thought, no, 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 it's not that we did something wrong. It's that they can only afford to feed two of us. And Matt and Barbie are older, so they've been around longer, so they're more used to them, and so they like them better. And so if they can only feed two, they're going to get rid of us. And then I thought, does mom know? Because I just don't think she would ever agree to this. Because I know she likes me. I know she likes me. And I know she did not approve this. And I know when he gets home, she is going to be mad. And by then, the old man has me and he was putting me down. I remember then just sort of resigned. I remember like just thinking, wow, life is short. And then thinking, as my head touched the pleather or vinyl or whatever it was, at least I got more time than Phil did. And then the next thing I know, the next piece of memory I have about it is the car pulling back into our garage and getting out and Phil's there and breathing and Matt and Barbara there and my mom is there and something distracts me or whatever and we just go on with our day and our lives and that's all that it was and it just fades from memory as things do when you're young and it was decades later that I suddenly had this memory resurface and I thought holy crap were my parents cultists like what what the hell was that I can't make sense of this I didn't go to my dad at first I went to my mother and I said I have this very vivid memory of this experience of dad taking us somewhere and having the baby killed. And I can't make any sense of it. And we went through it and my mother was horrified, like really looked in suspense because I'm like, mom, we're both alive. So obviously it wasn't what I was thinking it was, but what could it be? And as soon as I got to the description of the old man, suddenly she knew. And she told me that my younger brother had been uh, born allergic to milk and he wasn't eating and he wasn't gaining any weight as an infant. And they'd gone through many ways of trying to solve this. But my father, who suffered tremendous back problems throughout his life, was a firm believer in the healing powers of chiropractic care. And he had insisted that my mother give him a shot at taking the baby to the chiropractor to see if it helped with his digestive problems. And so he had always been trying to get my mom to go. And my mom had gone to the chiropractor once, this basement office, this skinny, white-haired old man who she found creepy, then she never went back. But she let dad take the baby to the chiropractor. For some unknown reason, I went too. And he obviously didn't break the baby's neck. He had gave him an adjustment. And my mom says, after that, the baby started to gain weight after my mom helped me piece the whole thing together and I went and told my dad the story. He thought it was the funniest thing ever because my dad's favorite everything is always the villain. The, the, the badder they are, the more he loves them. And he's never forgiven Darth Vader for going soft, you know, that kind of thing. He just loves the idea that I thought that he was having us assassinated. But I can't say that it hasn't threaded throughout my life, a slight distrust of my father's motives. is risk uh, after brian babylon we heard the freelance hellraiser he did a mashup of um, nelly and the 70s tv show grange hill after that the brilliant new york uh, actor vince gatton an old friend and just a natural of a storyteller a story we call snapper behind me now is pogo 
very talked about, buzzed about collage artist of the day. He uh, works, uh, in this one, he's working only with sound from um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Chocolate Firefly. All right, that happened. Deal with it. And up next, we have Miss Ophira Eisenberg. I think Ophira might be one of, or maybe the person to appear on the show most often. Because she's always awesome. Ophira's album, As Is, is out on iTunes. Here she is with a story we call Bathtub Virgin. I have always been a list maker, and in the 11th grade, I had three things on my list. Uh, Get a better haircut, find a good dermatologist, and lose my virginity. In that order. I have two older sisters. They talk to me about sex all the time, and they would basically say, sex is horrible. Uh, They would say, in the beginning, in the beginning, sex is horrible, you know, losing your virginity, don't waste it on someone you're in love with because it's awful and it's going to be the worst sex of your life. They described it like the life of a savage, nasty, brutish, and short. And so they're like, just go out there and find someone and like lose your virginity so you can have better sex with someone that you're actually in love with. And I was like, that seems like a fair, you know, assessment of how to proceed with this. So I went, you know, and told all my girlfriends in the 11th grade that I was like, yeah, you know, we shouldn't, like, wait to fall in love to lose our virginity. We should just find someone, get it over with. And they were like, oh, my God. Like, they just thought that sounded slutty and dirty and horrible. And they were like, no, we want to save her for someone we're in love with, except for my one friend, Cheryl. Cheryl's not slutty. Uh, She was a science geek. And she just felt that, uh, you know, this hypothesis made a lot of sense. (laughs) So she was like, I see where you're going, and, you know, I'm willing to sort of uh, talk to you more about this. And we would would hang out all the time in her basement, uh, playing on the computer... which was like massive, like making Lotus one, two, three spreadsheets of all the guys we knew and rating them in the different columns on like, looks, nice, car, car, hilarious. Uh, And then we'd pie graph it and be like, we should totally go for Seth. It was ridiculous. And we listened to Prince and I would... um, I would talk, you know, we started talking about this plan, like, we should, we decide that we should lose our virginity on the same night. Not to same people or anything pay-per-view worthy, but on the same night to different people, but that way we could examine the data together. (laughs) You know, it could be a controlled situation to the best of our ability, and then we could draw conclusions and write our thesis. So... We decided that what we would do, we, we, it was spring break was coming up. We decided that we would go to town for spring break uh, to Banff. I grew up in Calgary, and Banff is sort of the ski resort town nearby that people hang out during spring break, that we would go there and hang out. And if we found anyone that was the right match for our experiment, we would use a code word to indicate that we have found the right person. And the code phrase was, expand your horizons. <laughs> Which is a very bulky thing to like try to fit into normal conversation. Like, but we were just like, yeah, that's perfect, that's perfect. Spend your horizons, got it. So we, um, we drive out to Banff, about an hour away, uh, and we, we're, you know, we're young. In Canada, you can get a learner's permit at 16, and you're supposed to drive with an adult, but both of our parents work, so they were like, whatever. So we took the car, uh, her mother's car. We went and like, stayed at the shittiest motel in Banff because we really had no money. It was like $45 a night. You know, it was just a typical shitty motel room with the, the sort of carpet that you're like, I remember that carpet from when we rescued a dog. You know, like kennel carpets and uh, cigarette burns on the very thin bedspread. And there was one piece of art and it was of two squirrels fighting over a nut. <laughs> But this was going to be, this was our, like, this is our first experience, like, being away from our parents in, like, sort of an adult situation and staying at a motel. It was kind of ridiculous that we even got to do it. And so it's, you know, it's Friday night, and we're going to go hit the one strip of bars 
you know, because the drinking age is 18 and you're 16, you, it's pretty easy to get into bars. But we go through this process of trying to make ourselves look like 18-year-olds, you know, putting on very skimpy clothing, little half tops, little mini skirts, just ridiculous amounts of Maybelline makeup and like Bonnie Bell gloss and teasing our hair very big and putting on heels and we head out and we do not look like we are 18 at all. We look like 16-year-old girls that are trying way too hard, which is exactly the same. So... (laughs) We're walking down the street, and it's a huge bar scene, and these two guys are hanging out of a bar, like literally hanging out of a bar, going, come on, girls, come on, girls, how about you two girls, come on in. And that seemed to us like a perfectly valid invitation. We're like, those guys. So we walk into this bar, we sit down. These guys are in, I, I think they were in their early 20s. They ask our names. And we did, I think it's now like a parlor porn name game thing where you take your middle name and the, um, we, we took our middle name and our mother's maiden name. That's what we put together. So uh, Cheryl Proctor became Lynn Hollingshead. And Ophir Eisenberg became Jasmine Von Brunswick. <laughs> like, how could my fake name be fucking weirder? And we're talking to these guys. We claim that we are uh, chemistry and biology lab technicians. I mean, the lies are getting ridiculous. And that we're, you know, 18 and we're in having our little uh, spring break fun or whatever. And they tell us that they are Air Force pilots. And Cheryl or Lynn turns to me and she goes, you know what that means? They're clean. And I was like, it's good to have a smart friend. You know, I was like, that's good. You know, she's thinking we're dealing with Top Gun here. We're in good situation. And it becomes very clear who is going with who right away. And it's a story of my life. She is clearly with Maverick and I am with Goose. I don't know why I always get Goose, but I always get Goose. And we're talking and blah, blah, blah. And then they say, would you like to come back to our hotel room? We say, sure because it's all about moving this action forward. So we go to their motel room. It's across the street from our motel, but like four stars higher. It's it's nice. It's just, you know, they have two beds and that is it. So it's kind of confusing what might go on, but we're not even sure what's going on until they say, would you like to drink a purple Jesus, which is a cocktail that you will never find on a menu because the ingredients of a purple Jesus, if you don't know, is half grape juice <laughs> and half pure grain alcohol so it's basically like ether with a twist uh, and so we have a few of these and you know we don't even know how drunk we can get but Cheryl is starting to make out with Maverick and I see her and I'm just standing and talking with Goose but I see her making out with him and she's sort of in my eyeline and I'm out to her expand your horizons And she gives me like a lazy thumbs up. And I'm like, all right, we're on. Now, there's nowhere for me and Goose to go because they're in the main room. So I drag him around to the bathroom. And we start making out in front of that sink that sort of they have sometimes outside the bathroom for your bar. We're making out. And before I know it, we're naked. And he hoists me up onto the bathroom counter in between the shower caps and the travel shampoo and I lose my virginity on the most unconventional surface ever, but it is exactly as stereotypical as my sisters described it. It is quick, it is pretty nasty, and it, yeah, and it is quite brutish, because I'm like, we don't even know each other's real names. (laughs) And then it's done. And that's it, like there was no fireworks, he smiles at me, I asked for a towel. He said, are you sure you're 18? I said, yes. And I was like, one, I wanted to just go out and see what was going on with Cheryl. And I peeked around the corner and they were lying on the bed. So I was like, okay, okay. Can't wait to talk till tomorrow. Like, that's all I wanted was to go through this experience with Cheryl. I was like, I'm done. Check mark. Um, But we went to go to sleep and he, Goose, went out and grabbed some pillows and blankets from the other bed and made a little makeshift bed in front of that bar sink. And we fell asleep kind of cuddling until the morning. In the morning we got up, 
I said, do you want to go for breakfast? They were like, no, 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 we have training to do, uh, which I'm sure was a lie. They were like, get these chicks out of here. And so we walked across our very small walk of shame across to our motel in our little wrinkled mini dresses and the mascara down our face and the Bonnie Bell lipstick smudged. And I was just bursting. I just couldn't control myself. I just wanted to talk to Cheryl about it. And finally I just went, okay, okay, you're not saying anything. How was it? Expand your horizons? How was it? And she goes, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything. I was like what are you talking about? You didn't do anything. I said, expand your horizons. She goes, no, I thought you said, are you doing okay? I was like, how does expand your horizons look like, are you doing okay? Those are t-. And she was like, listen, I didn't think you were going to lose your virginity on a, in a bathroom. <laughs> like my friend had higher standards for me than I did. <laughs> and I was like, this was the beginning of a pattern of like, how did I manage to dupe myself and she was like, you went through with it? I said, yes. And she kind of looked down. And I didn't want to make her feel bad about it. So we just kind of went back to the motel in silence and very quickly returned to well-worn conversation topics like final exams and what we were going to do in the summer and new hair projects. Life continued along. I dated other people immediately and was sleeping with them, older guys. Cheryl did lose her virginity to someone that she was in love with about two years later. And when she told me, I was just a tad jealous. But life moved on. And about five years ago, I'm walking through the East Village. I'm still friends with Cheryl. She calls. And the funny thing is, is that we both planned our weddings on the same day. Hers in Calgary, mine in New York. And we're talking about how we can't go to each other's wedding. And I say to her, well, at least we're finally going to be doing something life transformative (laughs) on the same day. (laughs) And she says, what are you talking about? I'm like, remember, Bamf, when I lost my virginity and expanded horizons and you didn't go through with it? And I can tell that she's sort of searching for the memory. She's like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. We met those guys. What, What Was it at a bar? And I'm like, oh, my God. This was like one of the most major milestones in my life but to Cheryl like not a lot happened to her in that course of that evening but a huge amount happened to me and it just goes to show you are always the star of your own story thank you This is the Narcoleptic Dancers with a song called Rasta Kraut. Next story comes from another favorite of ours, another regular, uh, Mr. Christian Finnegan. Uh, he's now on a show called Are We There Yet on TBS. And you can always find him at ChristianFinnegan.com. We call this one How Bizarre. Between my junior and senior year of high school, I was lucky enough to leave behind the crypto-fascist Red Sox and wedgie-loving drudgery of my suburban public high school to attend a special boarding school for performing artists, for the, uh, the sensitive types in the world, the, uh, the cellists, the ballet dancers, uh, the sculptors, basically any queer bait with delusions of grandeur. Walnut Hill School for the Forming and Visual Arts in Natick, Massachusetts. And uh, when people ask me what the school was like, I always say it was kind of like the movie Fame if it was directed by David Lynch. (laughs) 
student body was such that there were a few students that went there who were just kind of general, I want to be in a play type kids. You know, like, I was great as Danny Zuko, and now I want to go to a school for it. (laughs) That's probably the kind of kid I was, but... The 180 student uh, body was kind of more defined by its polarities, the prodigies and the fuck-ups. And they were very easy to pick out. It's like, to your left, Lee Chen, Taiwan's greatest cellist who made her Boston Symphony debut at the age of nine. To your right, Seth, (laughs) who has been kicked out of five boarding schools, so I guess that means he's a painter. (laughs) I never had the delusions that I was a prodigy. Other than my encyclopedic knowledge of early 80s music videos, uh, nothing I do could be put in the sort of prodigy category. Uh, And I did have hopes that I would be one of the fuck-ups. I always fancied myself as sort of a disillusioned kid that nobody could quite understand. But when I got to Walnut Hill, it was only about a week when I realized that I could not hang with the big dogs in the fuck-up category. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I never even hung out in graveyards. Uh... (laughs) So I had to accept that despite my intense desire to be thought of as a weirdo, that I was a relatively normal kid. That was until I met Anna. Oh yes, Anna. I dated Anna for a calendar year, which as we all know in high school terms is forever. Uh, She was, uh, I would say, a pivotal figure in my life, even to this day. Uh, She was also the first adult sexual relationship I ever had. And when I say adult sexual relationship, I don't mean that I lost my virginity to her. She was actually the fourth girl I had sex with. Thank you. (laughs) But she was the first girl to ask me to stick a hairbrush up her ass. (laughs) Not the end with the bristles, you perverts. The classy end. (laughs) Now listen, I am not one to pass judgment on anyone's proclivities, uh, rectum-oriented or otherwise, okay? Let he who has not had a foreign object near his butthole cast the first stone. That is my policy. (laughs) But it does seem like that sort of activity would be considered an uh, adult form of entertainment. Do you you know what I mean? Like, that is kind of like... uh, Something you do when you're an older person, maybe you're in your 30s, and you realize, oh, I'm hollow inside. (laughs) And I, therefore, require a sexual defibrillator. (laughs) It seems to me that when you are in high school, you should probably be satisfied with sort of straightforward, entry-level, meat-and-potatoes, Coors Light, Budweiser sexuality. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm touching your nipple, your mouth is in the general vicinity of my penis, you know, sort of like fun kid stuff. And then when you get older, when you get your sea legs a little bit, that's when you sort of start exploring the world of, uh, say, dirty talk or uh, light choking. These sort of sexual, (laughs) you know, these sexual micro-brews, as it were. (laughs) Damaged people damage people. And... What could be more attractive to someone who is looking to wreak havoc than someone like me, a veritable sandcastle of pristine emotions? And she was like a seven-year-old on like a sugar rush. And so I was kind of her next project, and I, I loved her to death. I was absolutely obsessed with this girl. She was gorgeous, long, beautiful curls and, and sort of deep, smoky eyes that said, are you my new daddy? Uh, in addition... To- <laughs> In addition to being beautiful, she was also an intellectual. Like, she exposed me to, 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 to great books, and she introduced me to Morrissey and The Cure, which, like, completely changed my life. She wrote amazing poetry, wonderful, amazing, award-winning poetry that I understood not one word of, which is why I'm convinced it was excellent. Uh, I figure if I don't get poetry, it must be good. But I also tried to be an intellectual. I started wearing a black turtleneck all the time. I, 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 I pulled my formerly metal hair back into a slick back ponytail. I wore uh, fake John Lennon glasses, just pure glass, and I would wear them. Basically, if, 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 if you've ever seen the movie Singles, um, I was James LeGros' James LeGros character. Remember uh, Kira Sedgwick's old boyfriend, the guy with the ponytail? Like, you're so full of life, and these people are full of emotional larceny. That was me, essentially. <laughs> And I, uh, 
I was powerless against this girl. She, she completely changed my entire personality. Uh, one day in our midst of a relationship, she decided that we were above gender. And uh, that meant that we were, uh, since human men and women are 99% alike, which is what she said, and now that I'm older, I realize it's totally not true, uh, that we would split the gender roles. We would walk across campus with my arm in hers instead of hers in mine because we weren't like you sheep. Okay? We were a little different. Uh, I would call her Mr. and she would call me Miss. It was a different time. Okay? Um, and, but the problem is she also had very few boundaries when it came to sort of uh, weird activities. She would constantly blow her nose in my comforter. Um, yeah, yeah. She would come over to my dorm room. I'd sneak her in because she wasn't allowed. And uh, she would blow her nose in my comforter. And I would react kind of like you reacted. Just like, ugh. And she would make me feel bad about that. She would say, it's just bodily fluids. You lick my vagina, don't you? And I had no argument against that. I'm 38. I still have no argument against that. I, I don't know. That's a good point. I, I don't know how to say it. So she would just sort of blow her sort of mid-February phlegmy nose into my comforter and then wander back to her dorm room and I would sleep under the sort of paper mache uh, board all night. And I, I don't care. I, I absolutely loved her for it. I, I wouldn't want anything to change. Things started to get weird when... Uh, sometimes the funniest jokes are the ones that you don't even know are in the story. Things started to get weird when she started demanding that I punch her in the face during sex. Now, punching someone in the face as a sexual gesture, that's not even a microbrew. That's like absinthe with a meth chaser. <laughs> and keep in mind, this was way before I was old enough to have legitimate reasons to want to punch a woman, okay? I, I'm not saying I... I'm not saying I ever would, but I mean, anybody over 30, man or woman, you've wanted to punch your significant other at some point. And, and I'm not trying to justify domestic violence, trust me. I have never, ever touched a woman violently in my life, and I have been punched in the face by no less than four women. So <laughs> I have earned the right to say this. I mean, I, I love my wife to death, uh, but if she ever said to me, seriously, punch me in the face, I'd be like, oh, is it Christmas? I, I, <laughs> Seventeen-year-old, this seemed just a, sort of a little bit beyond me, and I and I and I uh, and she said, "Well, okay, how's this then? How about you just punch me in the chest and back, and that way no one will see the bruises and you won't get in trouble." And I thought to myself, "Well, she is trying to compromise. I, um, I mean, why am I so selfish that I won't punch this woman in the kidneys?" Um, but I, I refused. I took a stand. I said, "I'm sorry, Anna. I cannot do that." And that is when uh, she sort of lost interest in me. And all of a sudden, she started hanging out with another kid in school, Michael. The only kid in school with perhaps less of a spine than me. A tiny little dweeb, a, a recessive gene in, in sort of a book bag and zits. That's what Michael was. He was sort of like, he made Woody Allen look like Matthew McConaughey. And she started hanging out with him because he, he was the new sandcastle. And I knew that things were going wrong one night when, when Anna, we were supposed to have dinner, and she told me she was sick. And so I thought, I'm going to surprise her with chicken soup. And so I went to the dining hall, and I got her a bowl of chicken soup and a big cup of OJ, and I brought it over to her dorm. I was like, what a lovely gesture this is. And in the window, in her dorm room window, was Michael with a look on his face that screamed, I am not prepared for this. <laughs> and at that point, I saw Anna reach up and pull down the shade, and I stood there under her window for about 45 minutes while Michael lost his virginity. Now, if Anna was zero to 60 for me, she was zero to sort of breaking the sound barrier for Michael. <laughs> and from that point forward, Michael just had the sort of twitchy look in his eye all the time like he was because I knew this because we were all the three of us were all in advanced creative writing class together uh, a class consisting of five students so for an entire semester we got to critique each other's short stories which is a lot of fun when there's intense emotional undercurrents at play I, I would find myself working in sort of a passive-aggressive emotional stuff into my story critiques. Like, Anna, uh, it's a good story, but it just seems like your protagonist doesn't care about anybody but herself. It just seems like she's kind of cruel and heartless. Uh, uh, you write like a whore. Um, 
eventually, Michael had had enough of Anna. He could not handle her either. And uh, I don't know what happened, but he turned her away. And so she came crawling back to me. And when I say crawling back, I'm not exaggerating exactly. She showed up to my dorm room demanding that I have sex with her. And uh, I, I said, no, absolutely not. And I pushed her out of my room and I shut the door and I turned up whatever, you know, Queen is Dead or whatever shitty album I pretended that I was totally into at the time. And uh, she sat outside my door on her hands and knees and scratched at the door <laughs> until about 3.15 a.m. And eventually she went back to her, her uh, dorm and I felt like, all right. I finally cut the cord. I'm moving on. I'm a strong human being. The next morning, I called in sick to my classes because I had gotten no sleep. And when I went to lunch, everybody was looking at me, just staring at me. Like, did you hear? Did you hear? I was like, what? What happened? What happened? Apparently, someone had walked into Anna's room the next morning, and she had cut her wrists from about her wrist up to her elbow, like up the north way, which is, you know, the way saying, I mean this. And... So she was taken out, and that was sort of the end of our relationship, I guess. What's really strange is that apparently one of the English teachers in the school ran after the ambulance crying, leading to the widespread but never completely verified rumor that she was also having sex with him as well. So it wasn't so much necessarily a love triangle as a love rectangle. Um, I will say for the record that Anna uh, is still... She's alive. Uh, she has married. She has kids. So she's fine. I mean, I don't know if she's fine, but she has kids. Um, <laughs> thank you, Facebook. <laughs> but she lives somewhere in, like, northern New Hampshire, and she posts photos of her kids all the time, and they're smiling. And meanwhile, I'm in front of a bunch of strangers using the word ass play. Uh, so who really is the damaged person? Thank you, guys. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Going back a ways for that one, Voodoo Lady from the Chocolate and Cheese album. Well, we have one last story that comes to us from someone who took our nine-week workshop at the Story Studio. Joe LaSala is in marketing and communications, and he really just knocked us out. Every time he got up to tell a story in class, but especially with this one, we call it For Benjamin. The agency said she had a sticky uterus, which is not the sort of thing I normally look for in a girl, but it's exactly what Amy and I needed. We had seven frozen embryos that we had frozen from before Amy's cancer treatment. She had been diagnosed with colorectal cancer at 28 while we were still engaged and had to go through chemo and radiation and surgery and all of that uh, left her unable to carry um, or even create more embryos. So we needed the stickiest uterus we could find and Carol fit that bill to a T. She had three children of her own and had been a surrogate twice before, one of those being twins and both times getting pregnant on the first try. So that's five pregnancies, six babies, all before she was 28. The whole situation was really weird, but we were willing to take any sort of weirdness because in the end it wouldn't matter. We really wanted to become a family. and I really wanted to become a father more than anything else. We'd also have to remind ourselves all the time that we were having a baby because it's, it's hard to conceptualize when, when you're just living your life normally. We'd be at a bar hanging out, not being pregnant, 
and Amy would turn to me with a glass in her hand and say, we're having a baby, as if she just realized that, just remembered. It was just amazing to once in a while bring that back and realize, and you know, in eight months, we'd have a baby in our house. It was also really hard to, to there's the, the distance. We were four hours away from Carol and we try to get to every appointment, but it's a four hours drive there. We'd hop out for 20 minutes to see an ultrasound, hop back in the car and, and drive back to New York. And, you know, we missed a lot of just what normal couples get to go through during a pregnancy. I never got to feel the baby move. Amy's stomach didn't grow. And we missed all the, the good and bad parts of being pregnant. When the phone rang one night late, I knew something was wrong immediately. Carol sounded like someone trying desperately to be calm. My water broke, she said. Now, this is at 19 weeks of pregnancy. Normally, pregnancies last 40 weeks, so this was very, very early. She was on her way to the hospital. The next time the phone rang, it was much later, and Amy and I were hiding in the bedroom, trying not to panic, and the doctor called us said, doesn't, doesn't look good. At 19 weeks, there's no chance of survival. The minimum for viability is 23 weeks. And in fact, a lot of hospitals won't even resuscitate before 24 weeks. So we, we drove to Pennsylvania the next morning, the first thing, and the doctor brought us into the room, Carol, Amy, and I, and explained that the baby had a 1-2% to chance to make it to viability before Carol would go into labor or develop an infection. And that if he did make it to 23 weeks, he would only have a 20% chance of surviving then. And then if he did survive, that he had a really high risk of disability. You might want to consider terminating the pregnancy. We had these embryos frozen, and it was from this time before Amy was sick. And to give up on that is really sort of like letting cancer win. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but to see this baby be alive, to see life, is is sort of a last fuck you to cancer. To, you know, just be like, it didn't take away anything from us. And so it it might be a little selfish, but we saw this baby on the ultrasounds. We we knew he was there, and and I'm not pro-life or, you know, anti-abortion. You know, this was our baby, and we wanted it to make it. Um, So there's a lot of reasons why we didn't want to give up, and in a lot of ways, it was our only chance to be the family that we had imagined. Carol would have said later on that if this was her pregnancy, she would have terminated it. But she knew this was it for us. This was our chance. So um, we we discussed it, the three of us, and we decided if, if there was a chance for a miracle, we were going to aim for that miracle. So they, they sent Carol home um, shortly after because there really wasn't anything they can do until tw- 23 weeks. So she stayed on bed rest. He, his heartbeat was strong. He continued to kick her, and he uh, he held in there. But uh, just a few days shy of that 23-week goal, Carol was readmitted to the hospital. She started bleeding heavily, and the doctors let her know her life is at risk and that we could end this now and it'd be fine, but she fought. She did not want to give up, and she held out until 23 weeks and three days when I received another phone call, come to the hospital now. She had started going to shock from the internal bleeding and they had to do an emergency C-section. The doctors called us while we were still on the road and went into great detail about how difficult the, the delivery was and how risky the operation was and how Carol was, was doing fine. And finally I had to stop him and say, you know, how is the baby? The baby's alive but in critical condition. How soon can you get here? I said, well, we're just 20 minutes outside of town. We can be there real soon. He said, oh, great. There's no reason he shouldn't survive that long. This panicked us, and we drove as fast as we could to the hospital. We got to the hospital just as they were finishing setting him up in the NICU. 
he was tiny and bright red. He was one pound, 12 ounces, 11 inches long, and shorter than a piece of paper. You could take my wedding ring and you could put it over his hand, up his arm, over his shoulder. He was hooked up to a million monitors and IVs and wires and tubes. His tiny chest, bony, and it would rise up and down with the ventilator because his lungs were still so undeveloped. And he couldn't cry because of the breathing tube, and his eyes were still fused shut. He just looked alien and small. And we named him Benjamin. It was, it was hard because... I thought this was going to be a moment where I saw my son for the first time and I would feel like a father. But it didn't feel real at all. He went straight from Carol to the nurse's care and no stopping in between. And we just kind of observed him there behind this glass. I had read about how a lot of parents distance themselves from their babies in this situation because they don't know if the baby's going to make it and they, they don't want to get too close and I didn't want that to happen I, I wanted to, to take advantage of every second that we had so I tried to interact as much as I could um, and we were living at the hospital at this point you know this is out in Pennsylvania so we spent all our times there and there were some really scary nights where we didn't think he was going to make it but he started getting stronger he started getting bigger um and still under two pounds, but uh, he was overcoming some of the problems. So at one point he was stable enough that the nurses said, would you like to hold him for the first time? Yeah, of course. You know, This was the moment I was looking for. I, I, I thought that if I saw my wife hold him, I would feel like a father. We would be a real family. And I was just dying for this so they set Amy up in a big chair they put up a privacy screen I was ready with my camera I felt this is something that a father does always have the camera ready so um, but it was a whole complicated thing because Benjamin was still hooked up to all these wires and tubes and monitors and nothing none of that has changed so they needed actually two nurses to to bring him over to Amy and so they're navigating all of this, and they realize that the, the breathing tube on the ventilator isn't going to reach. It, it is too short. So uh, they're both standing there with, with the baby in, in their hands. And so I offer to help move the ventilator with them, along with them. And great, please, thank you. So I'm gently moving the ventilator over as they're lifting the baby. And I realize it got stuck on something. So I, I, I give it a gentle nudge, and it gives, and then there's silence, and then there's a hiss. I unplug the ventilator. I panic and run behind the, the isolate, and I have tunnel vision. Where's the plug? Where's the plug? Where's the plug? It, I, I, it's lost in a sea of wires. and. And now every alarm on Benjamin is going off and the nurses have him back down on the bed and they're manually breathing for him with her resuscitation bag. And at first it's working, it, he, he's, he's fine, but then his heart rate starts dropping. And Amy's up and we're holding each other and the other families are looking on with these looks of horror on their face because we're, we're living their, their nightmare. And I see my son turn gray. I can't stay to see what's going to happen, so I, I grab Amy and I, I pull her out of the room, and we hide in an empty meeting room, and I'm curled up on the floor, and I'm praying, please, 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 please don't let him go through all of what he went through. Please don't let him beat all these odds for my first act as a father to kill my son, to pull his plug, please. I would have traded my life for his in a second. I don't know how long we were in that room, but eventually we gathered courage and I got up and went into the hallway and a nurse was there and she had been looking for us. 
She said, your son is fine. You have to go see him. So the blood just rushed out of my head and I, there was a amount of relief. And I grab Amy's hand and we rush back to the isolate and it's open and he's lying there and he's pink again and his eyes are wider than I've ever seen them open. And he's looking at me like, what the heck was that about? And Amy and I are, are holding each other and, and just laughing and crying. And I realized, you know, he's my biggest responsibility. You know, he's, he's the only thing that matters. And I realized at that moment, holy shit, I'm a father. tendency to cross my mind as I walk along the coast everything is gonna be okay as long as you're around everything is gonna be just fine this is the silent partner from their album random the song is the things that matter most well, it is 5 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday, and I have got to get to bed. And all of us have got to remember that today's the day, folks. Take a risk.
the things that matter most Cross my mind as I hold your hand And walk along the coast But with all these things we care about You can't control the way that they turn out Everything is gonna be just fine We're all a little full of little storms We never really know what is to come Everything is gonna be just fine. And now it's time to turn off the machine. Push the stop button now. Turn off the machine, kids. <laughs>